Hey, Cracked fans. We are so excited to be welcoming our friends at Turna back to this show as a supporting sponsor moving forward. Now, of course, all of you tennis fans know Turna Tennis for their world-famous Turna grip, that iconic purple-colored grip you see on the rackets of so many different professional tennis players. But did you also know that they make the tackiest grip in the world? That's right, folks, the brand-new Turna Tennis Mega Tack Grip. It's the tackiest grip on the market. It starts tacky and, simply put, stays tacky longer than any other grip you'll find out there and if you tell your opponent what do i use on my racket i use the mega tack you're going to be attacking with that mega tack from start to finish if you've seen anything we do at cracked rackets you know i'm a hairy guy as you can imagine i sweat when i play the only grip that works for me is the turn of tennis grip of course the mega tack taking things to the next level how can you get yourself hooked up with a turn of grip today it's simple you're going to either find it wherever you buy your tennis goods or you can email them directly by emailing sales at uniquesports.com. That's sales at uniquesports.com. You mentioned Crack Rackets sent you in the email. We would greatly appreciate that as they let you, them know that we sent you there. But more importantly, you get a free sample and they'll treat you as family moving forward. Again, you email sales at uniquesports.com. You mentioned Crack Rackets. You get the free sample. You get hooked up with our friends at Turner. Once you use a Turner Grip, you're never going to turn anywhere else. Of course, again, ask them about the mega tack the tackiest grip on the market contact sales at uniquesports.com and get started with our friends at turn to tennis today welcome to hey great shot this is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's podcast, we continue our preview of the 2022 Wimbledon. Crazy to think the year's third Grand Slam less than a week away. And of course, here at Crack Rackets, as always, we know it's our job to keep you all updated, keep you the best educated, most well-informed fans in the business, prepare you for all the action that's going to unfold over the course of the fortnight. As always, we examine this slam from every angle, talking about the top contenders, the dark horses, the Americans. We'll break down the draws when they come out as well. And of course, on this show, we continue our preview by talking about the top five men's singles contenders entering this 2022 Wimbledon. Of course, we know thus far it's been all Rafael Nadal, and we haven't talked about it much on this podcast, but for the second consecutive season, the calendar slam, it's still in play. That's something to consider as we approach this Wimbledon. Of course, we also see the return of Novak Djokovic, Matteo Berrettini coming in hot as well. Perhaps just as notable as who will be playing is who will not be playing. There will not be Russian nor Belarusian players at this year's event, given the unprovoked aggression of Russia. Russia towards Ukraine, uh, Wimbledon's decision to subsequently ban those players from the event, something we have not discussed at length on our podcast, but something we plan to talk about here on today's show. And again, you all know the format of these podcasts. We'll talk about that Wimbledon decision, name our top five candidates, run you through the numbers, make our cases. If we're going to do all that, 
we better have some help. And thankfully, we do once again. And joining us for the first time in far too long, and I say far too long because it's been over a two-week stretch, is a man and voice all of you Crack Rackets fans will be familiar with, essentially a co-host of our mini-break podcast at this point. Of course, a man you know best as an uh, editorial producer. Excuse me. That's how long it's been. I'm even forgetting. For all things Tennis.com, Tennis Channel, it is our friend David Kane. David, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I've been held back from the Great Shot podcast for too long. It's time for me to expand my empire here within Crack Brackets. I'm conquering one podcast, uh, one podcast brand at a time. So I'm glad to be back. When you start doing interviews, I'll know I'm in trouble. That's when I'm really being squeezed out. And again, you'll have taken sole possession of Daniel West stuff, which I know is still your intent here. But um, yeah, <laughs> I better get him in the divorce. Yeah, fair enough. Um, no, I, I need. Yeah. Anyways, well said. Uh, with all of that in mind, of course, top five Wimbledon contenders, always a fun conversation. And, you know, it's always worth noting what five of the last six slams have been captured by Novak or Rob. Their continued excellence at these events, one of, if not the biggest storylines when looking at all of these Grand Slam events we see on the men's side. But before we get into our top five lists, as I alluded to, and I alluded to this on multiple podcasts over the course of the past few weeks, said we would have this discussion at some point. I want to have this discussion now. I was saving it, this discussion, for a smart person. Now, you're not a smart person, but you'll have to do at this point. Uh, But With that said, you look at the 2022 Wimbledon's decision to ultimately ban Russian, Belarusian players from the event. Subsequently, the ATP, WTA, strip Wimbledon of points at this event. And certainly, it's still Wimbledon. It's still going to count as a Wimbledon title. We still see the majority, if not all, of these top 100 players, if not injured, participating in this year's slam. That said, we have also seen a wave of top players in the world compete at all of the warm-up events leading into this Wimbledon. Why is that the case? Because they need to get points. You look for someone like an Arena Sabalenka, who is coming off of a semifinal at Wimbledon last season. She's going to get no points from this year's Wimbledon. Has to protect that ranking. Even the players who are going to be playing this year's Wimbledon, whether it be, again, a a Matteo Berrettini, who was a finalist last year. He goes off, rips two titles on the men's side. Certainly a Hubi Hercots winning his title after making the semifinals of Wimbledon last season. Why are these players playing these events? Not only to get the warm-up matches in, but because they need the points on their resume. With all of that said... Let's start big picture. Wimbledon's decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players. Where were you uh, with that when it when it was announced? It's It's terrible, as they would say in Moscow. But it's one of those things where you felt like it was coming. There were certainly whispers that there was going to be some kind of ultimatum given to the Russian and Belarusian players if they wanted to participate in this year's Wimbledon championships. From what we have heard, there were conversations between the players and the tournament. Concessions were were bandied about, but ultimately the decision was made to ban uh, Russian and Belarusian players who are representing Russia and Belarus, which is an interesting distinction because there will be Russian-born and in some cases Russian-based players participating at Wimbledon this year, but they will be representing countries like Kazakhstan and in the case of uh, Natella uh, Jalmidze, I think will be representing Georgia, which is certainly uh, ethnically uh, 
close to where she was born, where she grew up, and she will be representing them in the uh, in the doubles tournament. And it was certainly evidently an option that uh, other players chose not to take advantage of. I believe you can represent any country. Um, you want in a Grand Slam tournament, which is why players like Isla Tomljanovic represented Australia uh, quite a few years before she was officially naturalized as an Australian citizen and, and then thereby representing Croatia at other tournaments. So all of that said, it's a very tricky situation and it's one of those no-win situations because now we're in a place where we are feeling that the aggrieved party are these Russian and Belarusian athletes and not the people of Ukraine. The conversation has changed to where we are making all of these concessions on behalf of the Russian and Belarusian people who are now the martyrs in this situation. And I think as much as the intent was to not glorify Russian and Belarusian athletes, I think making them the victims in this situation is is not really the trade-off that Wimbledon or the British government thought they were making. I think they, they were certainly looking to minimize their involvement, but in, in any ways, they, they are very much the story because the world number one, Daniel Medvedev, who for the record, lives in Monte Carlo and does not live in Russia. And there are there are stories of his parents looking to give birth to him in France. It could have been a very different situation had that happened, just sort of the accident of birth, you know, sort of talking about the the minutia that, that is involved in this situation. Again, you know, were it not for a few weeks, a few months, this wouldn't have been an issue for Medvedev, though, it is in this situation, unfortunately. So he will not be participating. We will be without uh, a cohort of Russian players who could have been making a big difference, certainly in the men's event, as we're about to discuss, and the Belarusians, as it, as it were, for the women's event, whether that was a um, whether that was an Arena Sabalenka or even an Alexandra Sosnovich, who was famously the last person to beat Serena Williams at a tournament in singles, uh, and certainly charmed herself to and endeared herself to the British crowd when she won that match via retirement. So, I mean, there's there's certainly going to be a loss felt in the draw in both draws. So it's a tough one, and and, and hopefully, the I think the most important thing to hope for is that there is resolution in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine first and foremost. And hopefully we don't have to deal with this ever again, because this is going to be a very strange, in many ways, uncomfortable tournament to cover because we've kind of been shielded from the worst of the consequences of this uh, unprovoked act of aggression because the Russians and Belarusians have been playing every week. Yes, they haven't had their flag, but we haven't really had to deal with the consequences of what has been going on in the outside world. And now the, the, the real world is invading tennis once again, which is, I think, a, as, a, as a group of fans who are used to not having to deal with the real world, I think it's been one, one misfortune on top of another. First COVID lockdowns and now, um, now player nationality bans. It's just it's, it's a tough one all around. And it speaks to the various conflicts of interest, the various interests at play once again. As To your point, the ATP, the WTA have continued to allow Russian, Belarusian players to compete on tour. Wimbledon, in a vacuum, makes this decision to ban these athletes. And we have had this discussion in the past, particularly as it related to the ATP, WTA tours mandating vaccines on players throughout the course of this pandemic to say if you want to compete in these events writ large, we will have a vaccine mandate for you. Now, ultimately, again, that has not been the case. Um, But you continue, and it's been, once again, tournament by tournament, country by country, circumstance by circumstance. This continues to, I don't want to say show the lack of teeth, 
but the the disadvantages of not having a strong central governing body that can say from an edict top down, the ATP, we the ATP and WTA have decided all of our events are going to feature these athletes and these grand slams while individual tournaments are not going to get away with making these individual decisions. At the same time, of course, you do feel sympathy for these Russian Belarusian athletes, you understand the intent of what Wimbledon was trying to do, and we don't have to debate the ethics of providing a spotlight to Russian Belarusian athletes in this moment on this podcast right now. But I think that is the big picture conversation because due to the lack of central governing body, Wimbledon makes this decision. And then to part two of my question to you, the ATP and WTA respond by stripping the points from this event. What is your reaction to that response? It was the only response they could make. They were certainly not in favor of banning Russians and Belarusians from any tournaments, clearly. And when the decision from Wimbledon was announced right before Roland Garros, who welcomed Russian and Belarusian athletes, and then during the French Open, it was announced that the U.S. Open will welcome uh, Russian and Belarusian athletes. The cheese stands alone at Wimbledon, and while they can't you know, enforce a boycott, which I think would have been an even greater PR nightmare for all parties. This was really their only chance to in, enact any kind of recourse to show their uh, displeasure at Wimbledon um, stepping outside the lines on this one. And I think it was there was a lot of questions over whether this was going to radically impact the tour, or rather the field uh, heading into Wimbledon, would players, you know, abstain in light of the fact that ranking points would not be offered. But I think ultimately once the prize money was announced and that the prize money is very much the same as what it would be on a normal year, I would imagine even Rafael Nadal with his numb foot and all are all traveling to, to London to compete for what is going to be a hefty, um, a hefty amount of prize money on offer. I think that the points in many instances is a really a distant third in when it comes to what players play for. I would imagine prize money is really number one with a bullet and then prestige just behind that. And then points, uh, you know, a, a trailing much farther behind that. I think ultimately players are playing for money and, and, and slam counts. They're not really playing for ranking points. I mean, you talk to any player at a press conference if about their ranking and they say, I don't care about the ranking. I'm not following the rankings. So I think as much as it was their only recourse, it was really the, it was a. It, it was going to always be, as you said, a toothless um, response, but a, a response that had to be made in any event. Yeah, I would also, you know, obviously the points are what allow you to play the various levels of the events, as we talk about many times on these shows. You are correct in that it still carries the prestige because it still is offering the prize money. It's still Wimbledon. The majority of the field did not step out in boycott. Just about everyone is playing this event from, you know, again, ATP council members to PTPA members. Everyone's still playing Wimbledon. Um, I would also continue to make the point that you look for this event and, you know, again, competitively, I'm curious – I don't like the word asterisk because I just don't think that applies here. But in terms of the footnote you make of the circumstances surrounding this event, no Medvedev, no Rublev, no Sabalenka, a very much informed Daria Kasakina who made the semifinals of the French Open. I'm not saying she's going to win Wimbledon, but certainly I think she could be in the second uh, second week mix and the Kudermatovas of the world, Samsonovas of the world. You can go up and down. It's not the biggest group of players, but there are significant absences from this event. So how big is the footnote you put next to it? I think the asterisk will come into play 
depending on the atmosphere of the tournament. If it turns out to be a very weird event and you get a couple random champions, a couple random semifinalists, there may be the sense that, well, this was an off year. There were no points on offer. It was a sort of a contentious Wimbledon. At the same time, if Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal win their 23rd or 21st major title, I don't think anyone's going to be saying that they only won because Daniel Medvedev or Andre Rublev weren't there. I mean, as as great as those players are and as as entertaining as they are to watch, they are not the the stoppers at these kinds of tournaments that that you would expect at this point, frankly, of players in their age group against players um, as long in the tooth, as one would say, of Djokovic and Nadal. And the same goes for the women's event. If Iga Shiantek wins, no one's going to say there'd be a different story if Arena Sabalenka was in the draw. So I, I think even less so for the women's side than the men's side. But I think what can be said is that if it's a, sort of a weird tournament, the fact that there are no ranking points on offer, the fact that there are, you know, a swath of players, you know, unable to enter, you know, for the first time, a major tournament for the first time in recent memory, there could be just an asterisk in terms of vibes. But I think if, if the right players win, I don't think there'll be any asterisks moving forward. Two other quick tradition things, all white clothing. Are you in on it? Or are you done with it? I was more in on the all white dress code as it existed. I'm going to say pre 2013, there was like a bit more of a loosey goosey approach to all white where there were some contrasting colors. There was a much more strict all white dress code enforced in the mid 2010s that I find I don't appreciate. They're really the co- all of the color has been sucked out of, of Wimbledon. And I don't really love that. I, I, I prefer the, the predominantly white approach as opposed to the all white approach. Yeah, I think it's 2022. I enjoy the fashion of these various players, the various colors that these sponsors put out. And if you tell the sponsors, hey, we're offering you colors for the first time at Wimbledon, be special. The premier Wimbledon kits that would come out across the board, that would be delightful. So I would be in favor of getting rid of it. At the same time, do I really care? No, not particularly. You know what tradition I do love, though? Bowing to royalty whenever royalty comes to the match. You in or out? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm one of those people. I, I'm not a huge traditionalist. I did like some of the instances of calling, you know, players Miss or Mr., um, I think at the same time, given the week that we've had with some of the ATP on-court coaching rules, I think if you start changing some of these institutions at Wimbledon even further, I think you'll see some some people in the media just uh, clutch their totally clutch their pearls and drop dead. So <laughs> I feel uncomfortable even having this conversation, quite frankly. Fair enough. Well, I enjoy it. I bow to people all the time when I enter rooms. It's just a fun way to greet one another, and it brings a small smile to my face. But with that said, let's now move on and talk about our top five Wimbledon men's singles titled contenders. Look, will there be some obvious names? Absolutely. The place we have to start. Again, you look over, even in the immediacy, past two seasons, and you want to go back further in history. Obviously, we can talk about these the dominance of Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal since 2010. But even here in the 2020s, Novak Djokovic, three of four titles last year. Rafael Nadal, two slam titles to his name this season. They have to be the top two candidates on just about anyone's list. Let's start with Rafa, because I actually think he's the more interesting of the two. Now, I think Novak is probably the favorite of the two, and we will get back to him. But let's just start with the question. Do you think we will see Rafael Nadal play at this year's Wimbledon? Yes, I think he will attempt to play. Now, 
obviously there is some precedent of Rafa playing a slam and, and giving a walkover and ultimately exiting the tournament um, prematurely. And there were certainly some whispers as to whether or not Rafa would participate in at Wimbledon at all. You know, there were rumors coming out, I think, in the middle of Roland Garros that he had already decided not to play Wimbledon. Um, so with that in mind, I was a little surprised, to be honest. I thought that, that he was really going to try to max out his body for the U.S. Open, a tournament where he has been very successful in the past. And given the fact that he's now seemingly up a break, <laughs> as it were, on Novak Djokovic in the Grand Slam race, it did seem like a huge ask to expect Rafa to, to replicate the sort of magic that he's pulled off in Australia and Paris again in London so soon. So it really does speak to, you know, character and determination that he's even attempting this, this run. I mean, I think the fact that he has an opportunity small as it may be to um, complete a calendar year grand slam for the first time in his career is really something that must be on his mind. It's an accolade that Novak Djokovic narrowly missed out on. It's something that Federer was never able to do. And so with that, with that in mind, it's just one more potential achievement, you know, in the great goat debate, if Nadal can pull off this calendar year grand slam and, and finish with the most slams, it will certainly, you know, really close the book on that debate once and for all. So I, I do think he'll show up. I think it's hard to imagine that he wins, but at the same time in the last couple of years, after some, some quite disappointing attempts at Wimbledon, after some early successes, he really has seemingly rounded back into form, had a really great run in 2019, played a great semifinal against Novak Djokovic. So, I mean, it depends on the surface. It depends on how his foot is feeling. If he can get through some early rounds, again, it's all going to depend on the draw, which is why I hate when you pull me in before the draw is out. But with that said, I think that, you know, now that he's, if he's in the draw, he's determined and he feels that he can compete. I think if he didn't feel he could compete, he wouldn't be playing. So I think that we will see him and he will give as good of a go as humanly possible. And I think expectations were quite low for Rafa heading into Roland Garros. And he certainly superseded those. I think they're probably lower here. So we'll see if he can, uh, he can surprise us again. We agree, Rafael Nadal, of the four slams, Wimbledon is the pejorative weakest slam for Rafa, right? That, I think that's safe to say, pejoratively. Well, and maybe I, that's a maybe I'm attacking a straw man, and if I am, David, please let me know. Uh, please let me know. But what's always worth noting: Rafael Nadal's won over eighty percent of his matches at all four slams. Rafael Nadal's made five finals at Wimbledon. He's also made five finals at the U.S. Open. He's made six finals at the Australian Open. You know, the numbers are not that far off. He has won two different Wimbledon titles. He's won, what, two different Australian Open titles. I mean, you look for Rafa in his career, 53-12 and 12 at Wimbledon. 53 and 12. Now, he's only played it three times since 2015. He went round of 16, 2017, semifinals 2018, semifinals 2019. The last two times Rafa's played uh, Wimbledon, he's made the semifinals. And those two losses, Djokovic 10-8 in the fifth and Federer four sets. One of my favorite matches. Got to watch it in Chicago with my roommate. Shout out uh, to that. You know, that was one of the final those are what that's one of my final pre-covid memories is going to Chicago and watching that semifinal match because it felt like might this be the last Rafa Roger match at a grand slam and you know again certainly that's a, a conversation perhaps for a different time the point here Rafael Nadal 53 and 12 at Wimbledon 82% win percentage she's also 71 and 20 in his career on grass courts the numbers for him he holds 90% of the time on grass courts you're a top three server. You're Kyrgios, you're Opelka, you're Isner. Like, that's how 
frequently he holds serve, certainly with his willingness to move forward at this stage of his career, we know that skill set is available to him on this surface. The break percentage still at, you know, 24.4%. That's top 10 grass court break percentage you're going to see on the ATP Tour. The numbers say it. The eye tests say it. Rafa certainly has the skill set comfortable enough for Turner to be exceptional on these grass courts. The question is, how healthy do you think he is? And, I mean, we're not doctors. It's tough for us to speculate. I can't say I've been watching Rafa's practice sessions and reading into them for uh, too far. But competitively, you feel like Rafa wouldn't play if he didn't feel healthy enough to do go the distance, right, and play the seven matches needed to win. And that's why I think he still has to be top two on the list, even if Hoopy Hercots, with his results last year, winning a warm-up event in the lead-in here. He has looked very good on the grass courts. The the creme de la creme, Matteo Berrettini, who if anyone else is going to be two, has to be Berrettini. He's lost three times since 2019 on grass courts. Has made a Wimbledon final, two straight titles coming into this event. He's the lead of the best of the rest, right? So that's what this comes down to is can this Berrettini beat Rafa straight up? Like, if Rafa is healthy, who are you picking in that match? Rafa's healthy? I mean, I think you still pick Rafa. I mean, you go back to that, like, that famous uh, Wikipedia uh, draw, like, table of all of the Grand Slam tournaments, and it's all Federer, Djokovic, Nadal pretty much for the last 20 years with some very small exceptions. I mean, as much as we talk about the rise of the next gen and the, the breakthrough of the next gen, whether it was, you know, Daniel Medvedev making the uh, U.S. Open final 2019, finally winning in 2021, being up two sets and almost a break on on Rafa in Australia. Ultimately, it is the big three who are still taking home the biggest titles. So if Nadal is healthy, he is far and away the number two pick to to win this title. If he's not, there's probably a bit less distance between him and and your Hercatses and your Berrettinis. But I think ultimately they still have the edge, Djokovic and Nadal. And I think that's carrying, that edge is carrying them through in spite of, you know, age, physical issues. I think there's just an inherent belief. And I mean, it's just, it's gotta be surreal to be taking on a legend, a living legend, as it were. I mean, that they've been, they've been doing this for over, over almost two decades. And so I think that that's an incredible mental hurdle, but this, at the same time, God, next year, you got to get it together. <laughs> no, I mean, look, Berrettini again, 32 and three on grass courts since 2019. The losses, Gofen in a 10 match and 14 day stretch where he lost in his final after winning a title the week before. Federer straight sets Wimbledon 2019 round of 16. That was his breakthrough season, really breakthrough slam. That was a big moment for Berrettini, but a learning moment for him. The other loss, four sets, Wimbledon final last year against Djokovic. You look for Berrettini. He holds 92.8% of the time on grass courts. That number would rank tied for first right now with Nick Kyrgios on amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour. Again, for Rafa, the hold percentage, 90.7% at Wimbledon for his career. Strength on strength, you probably lean the Berrettini serve as the biggest weapon on the court. But are you going to bet against Rafa's leftiness just into that backhand corner, into that backhand corner with the serve over and over again? Now, it's a little bit more difficult for Rafa to get around that ball, but you know, anytime Berrettini slices— Rafa's going to make him pay, and Rafa, more comfortable moving forward, will be able to take some time away. You do feel like, again, in that matchup straight up, you probably have to still pick Rafa, 
That's why I have him at number two, but I don't feel great about it. Like, I do think that's at least a four-set match. I think, like, Berrettini can beat Rafa at Wimbledon, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I mean, I think we got to give a lot of credit to the way Berrettini has bounced back. I mean, this is the second really impressive comeback from injury in the last couple of years, whether it was Taylor Fritz last year coming back from a big surgery and now Berrettini coming back from surgery and and both of them looking better than before. I mean, the the the... The, the power of modern medicine has really been on display over the last couple of years, for sure. Um, I mean, I think when when Nadal was, there was questions over whether he would even attend Wimbledon. I think this was looking to be quite an interesting field. It was going to, as we said, it was going to be some wonky vibes with no points and no Russians, no Belarusians. Where are we going to see an opportunity for them to break through? But I think what we're also now seeing is that, you know, Djokovic is rounding into form. Nadal has this sort of, you know, intangible extra, you know, mystical quality that is powering him through these last two major tournaments. And so, I mean, I think there's really, you know, the, the fire does burn brightest before it goes out. I mean, we're seeing quite a burn from uh, Nadal through these last two major tournaments, and it would be impressive to see him pull it off a third time. If he is healthy, you know, it's, it's all him and Novak, but if it's not, there is an opportunity for these, uh, these late comers or, or <laughs> next gen comers to uh, make their, make their mark. Yeah, and we'll get back to Berrettini, but you mentioned Novak there. Straight up, Novak versus Rafa, are you picking Novak? And if so, why? Yes. I mean, I think we, we've been kind of waiting for this moment for the last month and a half. I mean, I think midway through the clay court season, things were looking a bit dire for Novak Djokovic. I mean, that loss to Davidovich Fokina and Monte Carlo and, you know, getting sort of outgutted by Alcaraz in Madrid, but then, you know, heading into Rome, it felt like he really needed something special, something particularly his brand of dominant to sort of change the narrative. And he got that. He got a really emphatic Rome win. His only loss in Roland Garros is to the guy who's won it a bazillion times. I mean, no shame there. And it was pretty a pretty closely fought match. I mean, I, obviously he had a bit of a mental hiccup towards the end of that fourth set. It certainly seemed like we were going to a fifth and he sort of took his foot off the gas and uh, uh, no, <laughs> Rafa put his, you know, leaden, deadened foot <laughs> on the gas pedal and really just drove through the wall there on, on Chatrier that night. So Ultimately, I don't know if that really speaks to a weakness in Djokovic so much as just sort of, again, the supernatural strength of Nadal at these major tournaments. That said, you know, grass has really become and Wimbledon's really become, you know, one of Djokovic's safest bets, you know, and this is coming from a, a player who, you know, was sort of an easy out, you know, when when uh, Djokovic got uh, an aging Marit Safin back in 2008, it felt like that opportunity for for the, the the former big name, former world number one to get a big win over a top ranked player. And he did it and he made it all the way to the semifinals. I will never stop talking about Marit Safin, even though it is 2022 and he retired almost a decade and a half ago. But that said, you know, I think he's this is his moment. This is certainly talk about a make or break moment for uh, Miramir Kecmanovic, as we mentioned before we started getting on the podcast to record. I think this is sort of Novak Djokovic's make or break moment after missing Australia, seemingly ostensibly underperforming in Paris. If he doesn't perform here at Wimbledon, it's unlikely to participate at the U.S. Open, barring some major you know, shift in the COVID-19 vaccine rules for, for those who are not from the United States, unlikely to be at that tournament. This is a big opportunity for him to sort of just somewhat, you know, keep the the gap between him and Nadal friendly. It's, it's gotten a, yeah. bo- a lot wider after, I mean, we certainly couldn't have expected that this time last year when, 
when uh, Novak was really barreling into the lead uh, from behind. So I think this is a big moment for him, but I do think he will do it. I mean, I would be very surprised if he didn't, to be quite honest. I agree with you. And it's the second straight podcast we're doing this or second slam consecutively, excuse me, where Novak has to be the clear cut favorite. He's won three consecutive Wimbledons. You look for Novak last season, who again, 2021 overall, just grass court matches that he played. Uh, you know, he did not play a single warm up match heading into Wimbledon. First round, drops that opening set, 6-4 to Jack Draper. You hit the panic button a little bit and think, oh, okay, like a big lefty's moving him a little bit. He doesn't look particularly comfortable on the surface. He only drops one more set the rest of the tournament. Novak Djokovic, 82-10 and 10 at, at Wimbledon, holds 89.6% of the time. His 26.6 break percentage at Wimbledon has to be the highest break percentage in the tournament's history, certainly higher than Nadal's, who's going to be up there as well. I imagine it's higher than Federer's. I'll go look that up. But Novak Djokovic can play tennis on grass courts. And what I mean by that is he's the only human who's flexible enough, comfortable enough outside of 2011 or really 2007 to 2017, Andy Murray. He's the only one I've ever seen slide in and out of corners, be able to extend rallies, play his brand of physical tennis. Of course, as we've seen over the past couple of seasons, there's also now more juice on the first serve. He's a little bit more comfortable moving forward. And to your point, yes, he lost to Rafa at the French Open, but he was playing significantly better tennis those last four weeks of the clay court season. And if, you know, 90% of Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon is better than the rest of the field, and especially if it's not at 100% Rafael Nadal, I just think you have to make Novak the number one favorite. Certainly, you look right now via our friends at DraftKings. They have not only Novak Djokovic the favorite right now entering the Wimbledon, they have him favored against the rest of the field. You look for Novak Djokovic right now, and it is kind of ridiculous uh, to see this. But yeah, Djokovic right now against the rest of the field, a ridiculous minus 150. They are saying pick anyone else. We don't care. We're still not going to give you plus money on Novak Djokovic. There's a reason for that. He has looked good enough, to your point. We get to see something we haven't seen in quite a bit of time, which is an urgent Novak Djokovic. Yeah, last year Novak Djokovic was chasing history. But it's much harder to chase history than it is to chase a human. And now he's chasing Rafa again. Two slams down in the count. And hell hath no fury like an angry Novak Djokovic, who, let's not forget, won three consecutive majors last season after the debacle that was the end of 2020 for him. And so to your point, it is go time. Novak hasn't felt this. I mean, well, actually, I was going to say he hasn't felt this sort of pressure at a slam in a while, but it's like, did you not watch the U.S. Open or Olympics last year, Alex? I did. But this is a different sort of pressure. This is, again, now it's, uh, you're right, I don't want to fall more than two behind, particularly if he can't play the U.S. Open. And I think we're going to see a special week from Novak Djokovic, special fortnight, excuse me. And I said this on an earlier mini break podcast, Wimbledon is the only tournament that's allowed to call itself a fortnight because a fortnight is inherently British, uh, in my opinion. But I think this could be a special run. I think this could be a spank you very much. And you know, Novak is uniquely suited to beat Matteo Berrettini because it's like, okay, I'm going to make your first serve back and play and get it back to your backhand, and now it's Novak time. I just think we could see a run from Novak here where it's just a reminder to the world, like, to your point, the points. I'm just better than all of you. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, we saw Novak against the next gen cohort last year uh, at Wimbledon. He really wiped the floor with, with both of them. It really, though it was four sets in the final against Berrettini, you never really felt that there was much doubt that Novak was going to win that final. And I would expect the same again. I don't think anyone has really improved so markedly on the surface as to really present a massive challenge. Again, this is Novak's last, last major chance to, to win a, t- a grand slam this year. And I would imagine that he would take it. And at that point then he's only two behind um, pe- two behind passing uh, Nadal and then only one to tie him. So I think this is a, a pretty big moment for him. And I, I, I kind of think he will take it. Yeah, fun fact, they've played four times in their career on grass courts. 2007 Wimbledon, uh, Djokovic retires in the third set. Rafa, 6-5 win. Yeah, classic 07 Djokovic. That's a classic 07 Djokovic. 2008 Queens Club final, Rafa, 6-5 victory over Novak. They played 2011 Wimbledon, four-set win for Novak. 2018 Wimbledon, 10-8 in the fifth set win for Novak. Obviously, goes on to win that Wimbledon title as well. If they're both healthy, you lean Novak on a grass court. Novak's the healthier of the two heading into this Wimbledon. Novak has something to prove, which not really, but sort of. You know, he can convince himself, you know, no one's believing in me. Everyone's forgotten about me. I'm still the guy to beat. Uh, you know, don't don't think my argument for the greatest of all time is over. I'm still very much, David, in the conversation. And I think we're going to start getting in trouble for that. I'm a little bit worried that that conversation, that people are taking it too seriously. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think he has to be your number one. And, you know, we love tiers here at Cracked Rackets. If it's tier one, who's the guy, you know, again— the clear-cut favorite, Novak's tier one, and I think he's in that tier by himself. I would be surprised if Rafa wins Wimbledon. Not shocked. Rafa's the top of tier two, but I think Novak is a clear-cut favorite. I think only because— Of the health. Of the health. I mean, yep. although at the same time, I mean, he set expectations quite low heading into Paris. I mean, with the, you know, the really tough loss in Rome, it's hard to compare. I mean, like, it's like the, the obvious health struggles in Rome versus just sort of the relative lack of comfort on grass as opposed to clay. How do you measure sort of the unlikelihood of Nadal overcoming this sort of um, adversity? I mean, and it's, I mean, it's funny to talk about Djokovic as if he's like in any way out of this, the, you know, yeah. this goat, this goat race, he is by far the healthiest of the three. I mean, <laughs> one is one's only got one foot and the other one is, you know, better. It hasn't been playing Has quite a long time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it's, he certainly is in pole position if he should get a full year next year, you know, how things will, will pan out if he's allowed back in Australia, if he'll be able to play the US Open. I mean, that uh, you would, you wonder how that's going to impact him long-term, this continued decision to not be vaccinated hasn't impacted him in in Paris or London. So he's got opportunities on the specialty surfaces, no matter what, but at the same time, he's certainly the one still in pole position to finish. Um, He's the, uh, the youngest and, and the relative healthiest of the three. So you still think he's the one to, to beat there. And, and, and again, the lack of meaningful competition behind him gives me pause in terms of thinking that this is by any means over for Novak. So I, I, he's definitely my favorite to win it. And I would put him to answer your question in a tier by himself. I would put Nadal in maybe one a, and then yeah, I, 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 was say, I rescind, I rescind my tier two Rafa. He's tier one and a half, or if he's healthy, he can elevate himself to tier one. You know, he's not going to be tier two because absolutely Rafa, again, hasn't lost at a slam. This sort of season. one of those like middle Sunday evaluation, reevaluations. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Which tier would Berrettini be in? 
one and a half or tier two? Because I do think if anyone else not named Rafa or Novak is going to win this slam, it has to be Matteo Berrettini, particularly given this is where you feel Daniil Medvedev's absence the most. I think you can talk about some other players who, if they get hot, can certainly be in the mix, but we've seen Berrettini in a Grand Slam final. We've at least seen him go four sets against Novak Djokovic in a slam final, and we know when his first serve is hot, it's going to keep him in matches. He ha- you know, Despite not playing during the clay court season, Berrettini wins two consecutive grass court events to kick off this grass court season. And if you want to knock you know, the strength of schedule during uh, in those wins for Berrettini, say it wasn't the toughest field for him, you know, his best win— Maybe Andy Murray in the final, but of course, Murray injured towards the end of that match. Still a very good match. You know, three sets over Dennis Kudla is a really good win for us hardcore fans, but certainly that's not something the people who are tuning into Wimbledon will be writing home about. Um, Again, I think the number is 29 and 3. 29 and 3 on grass courts since 2019. Excuse me, 32 and 3 on grass courts since 2019. Speaks for itself. That's ridiculous. And, you know, despite missing the entire clay court season with his success on the grass courts, Matteo Berrettini, all the way up to number 12 in the ATP points race, like just right away back in the mix. He's been a proven commodity. You want to go all the way back since 2019. He's 115, 48 and 48 overall. If you want to go just since the start of that 2020 season, because 2019 was really his breakout year where he was making finals on a bunch of different surfaces, makes that first round of 16 at Wimbledon before getting smacked by Fed. 67 and 24 overall since the start of 2020. He's winning 74% of his matches, David. He's held 89.8% of the time. That's a perennial top five number. We know his serve, his first forehand is elite against players ranked outside the top 20, the players you have to beat to get to the second week, the players you have to just, and again, you can't win the tournament if you lose in the first week. You can, you know, you can't win the tournament week one, but you can certainly lose it. Matteo Berrettini is 60 and 13 against players ranked outside the top 20 since the start of 2020. Simply put, if you're not a top 20 player in the world, you're just not beating him. And I mean, that's the case for Berrettini. Why he's going to be tier one and a half and maybe not tier two is because everyone else in the next gen crew, the entire non-Rafa Djokovic field, he just is the surest bet. Yes and no. Okay. It's unfortunate that this, that this podcast is going to come out before or probably after the draw, so we can't speak definitively. No, it'll come out before the draw. It's coming okay. out tonight. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic because I will say, talk about Wimbledon traditions that we're missing. I think the grass court results seeding formula would certainly be something that Mer- Matteo Berrettini would lobby to bring back because unfortunately for Berrettini, while he is bumped into the top eight as a result of uh, Daniil Medvedev's um, absence from Wimbledon, he's a number eight seed. And there is a one in four shot that he could get Novak Djokovic in the quarterfinals. And based on history, he has tended to get Novak Djokovic in the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam fairly often. He is very much the Nadia Petrova to his uh, to Novak Djokovic's Maria Sharapova, where they were just boom, boom, boom. Every major tournament, he, she was getting her in the quarters. And every time Maria got the better of her. And there's a 25% chance that could happen again. I mean, it's just as great as he's been against top, you know, non-top 20 opposition. He could get a very impressive top 20 player in the quarterfinals and Novak Djokovic and sort of sort of render all of those fantastic numbers moot. That said, if he is, you know, seated 
maybe not against Nadal. If he's certainly in the opposite, if he's in the bottom half playing, a, getting a Kasparud or a Stefano Tsitsipas, I would really be somewhat inclined to put him in the 1A category to certainly make the final and then see what happens depending on how Novak is holding up, depending on how Nadal is holding up. But I think seeding here is really going to play a potential uh, a factor in, in whether or not Berrettini can really get that breakthrough because there's a there's a 50% chance he can get a really great draw and there's a 50% chance he can get a really crappy draw. So as, as great as he's done heading into Wimbledon, certainly superseded expectations coming into this tournament because coming out of surgery, we didn't know where he was going to be tennisistically. I just, I just can see the draw in front of me and I can just see that Novak Berrettini quarter. I could see those hash flags that people put up on Twitter when the draw comes out, you know, Serbian Berrettini, uh, Serbian Djokovic, Italian Berrettini, and just sort of rendering all of that moot. But otherwise he is certainly, I would say the number three favorite to win this tournament. Berrettini's last five slams, round of 16, 2021 Australian Open retires before playing CT pass quarterfinals, 2021 French Open lost to Djokovic finals, 2021 Wimbledon lost to Djokovic quarterfinals, 2021 US Open loses to Djokovic semifinals, 2022 Australian Open loses to Rafa. Djokovic, 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 Rafa, his last four actual losses at slams. Yeah, that's beating the best of the rest. And to your point about the draw, you're right. You know, he could wind up facing Novak Djokovic early. But you feel like it's going to take some sort of special performance, whether it be from a Rafa, a healthy Rafa in the final, or one of those magical moments for Matteo Berrettini where he's just landing first serves at will. And maybe it's, you know, again, it is quarterfinals and not match six, match seven, when you know Djokovic has his rhythm and you just catch him on the right day and you go up two sets to love and then you sneak out a fourth set breaker. Like Berrettini seems like the one guy who could execute his game plan rigorously enough and disciplined enough to maybe pull that rabbit out of the hat. And again, I'm saying maybe and couching all of these takes in doubt because you're right, as we alluded to 20 minutes ago, Novak Djokovic is, or 10 minutes ago, he's the guy. Like, he's the favorite. It would be stupid if we just stopped the podcast there. I asked for top five, not why can it be Rafa? Why can it be Novak? Let's just stop. I think if anyone's going to be able to do it, it's Matteo Berrettini. And certainly you look in his career head-to-head, he's 0-4 against Novak. He's, you look for him against Rafa. Let's say he's the eight seed who ends up drawing the two seed for just uh, some reason. Berrettini against Nadal is 0-2 in that matchup as well. As we said, it's going to take some magic, but I think Berrettini's the closest to summoning it. He's three on my list. I imagine he's three on yours as well. Now things get interesting. And now, again, this is where we separate between tier two, tier three. I like to think Although tier I, two. Oh, go I ahead. do want to add. I want to say, like, if Djokovic gets Berrettini in the quarterfinals and beats him in four sets, I don't really want to hear anything about it being a magical performance from, from a Djokovic as opposed to just sort of standard. As To your point, yeah. that would be 5-0 and oh against Berrettini. That just means that, again, Berrettini and Next Gen, we need to get it together. Because, I mean, this is not that they should be beating these players, but they kind of should be beating these players with – you know, whether it's 90, you know, 10% of the time, 25% of the time, it should not be a hundred zero still in the year of our Lord 2022. I mean, I think to your point, Berrettini is probably the biggest potential challenger to this number one with a bullet, Novak Djokovic, but at the same time, time and momentum and all of those things give Berrettini a pretty good shot of winning, of pulling off this potential upset. And if he doesn't do it, 
there will still, there will be a hint of disappointment, even if he is just coming back from surgery. The fact that he's going to be rolling in on, on a however long match win streak coming from Queens into the quarterfinals or semifinals or final of Wimbledon and then doesn't do it against Djokovic. You know, we start to then wonder how much of this is the big three and how much is it, this is everybody else. I'm, so, I'm sure the people who believe in magic and starlight in the men's tennis game will say that it is just the superior, the inherent superiority of Novak and, and, and Rafa. But at the same time, I guess you need to get it together. Yeah, fair. Completely fair. I do think, again, why is Berrettini in tier one and a half and not tier two? Because I think it's realistic. I think if you sold someone Berrettini, went, 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 do we leave all that in or should I have Westoff edit that out? Leave it in. Yeah, put it on, put it on um, Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I co-host, as I said. I think if Berrettini were to win the 2022 Wimbledon, you would be surprised, not shocked. And that's why he's tier one and a half because I think to – Two, tier two, at least in this instance, would be a surprise, a full-on surprise, maybe even borderline shockage uh, here for tier two. I have three and a half names in my tier two. And again, top three guys, Djokovic, Nadal, Berrettini, unanimous between David Kane and I, which is how you know it's going to be Yuri Veshley, my guy who I still have stock in, winning this 2022 Wimbledon. My next tier would be three names. Do you want to hear them and tell me if I'm missing any? Sure. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, let's go Felix, Hercots, and Kyrgios. Those are my next three names. Now, we can get into the Nick argument because certainly that's always fun. My half name would be Carlos Alcaraz, who I'm not sure how I feel about, and I want to save him for a little bit later. But let's go with the three known commodities. Felix, Hercots, Kyrgios. Do they belong in Tier 2? Am I missing any names? You certainly named all the names that I would have named. Okay. <laughs> Kyrgios was not one of them, but you did mention Alcaraz. And I, I would put her cats above Felix. I would, I would say her cats, Felix, and in your order, some order Alcaraz or Kyrgios in terms of top picks to win it. But I think realistically, once you get beyond those names, you're starting to really kind of struggle to pick top contenders, which is why I incidentally picked this topic because it just felt like a quite a quite a narrow scope heading into Wimbledon. I mean, we, maybe we thought things would be a little bit different with Kasper Ruud and Stefano Tsitsipas, but they haven't really established um, the sort of momentum that you would have expected of, of, a, of a potential Wimbledon contender. So I think we're, we've got a good pack of five to six names right now. Yeah, I see. This is why you picked this topic, so you could get out of here in under an hour. I see what you're doing. So you, um, could, you couldn't throw a random world number 78 at me and ask me if he's yeah. a dark horse to win Wimbledon. I'll just leave the podcast. I do think, and this is where no Rublev, no Medvedev, even a guy like Hatchinov, who you just feel like is a staple of the round of 16, he wouldn't be in this discussion, but he is not in the mix. And, you know, no Zverev, I, obviously a guy who you feel like he's going to be in a round of 16 at a slam. That's another name you're missing as well. Casper Ruud hasn't shown enough, and shout out to Ryan Penniston, obviously, for his victory over him in the warm-up matches. Yes, Ruud is going to be a top-five seed, but do you feel confident for sure that he's going to get to the quarterfinals? Absolutely not. I would say Tommy Paul right now is a better version of Casper Ruud. Everything you're hoping Casper Ruud will be on grass courts, Tommy Paul is right now. And so 
like that I can make that argument fairly confidently. I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. I don't think he can be on that list. I think Hubie has to be on the list. And you look for Hubie Hercots this season, who, you know, according to Tennis Abstract, fourth highest grass court specific ELO rating. Again, it's in terms of just rating matches, strength of schedule, resume, what you've done, grass court specific. It goes Djokovic one, Berrettini two, Zverev three, Hercots four, Medvedev five. Felix 6, which is interesting. And by the way, Kyrgios 11th on that list. And we'll get to that argument momentarily. But let's start with Hubie, who, of course, made the semifinals at last year's Wimbledon. You look for Hubie Hercots just this season alone, you know, 28 and 11 overall on the year. He made quarterfinals at the Monte Carlo Masters. He made quarterfinals in Madrid. He played Kasparu to four sets, your French Open finalist. Hercots goes four sets with him at the Roland Garros round of 16. He proved it to us during the course of this uh, clay court season when, you know, again, the track record, he was around 500 for his career on clay at the ATP level entering the year. Of course, you look for him overall this season at the Masters level, you know, 12 and 5, two quarters, the semifinal he made in Miami, round of 16 at Indian Wells. You know, certainly round of 16, Roland Garros was nice. Losing to Manorino at the Australian Open, disappointing. But this is the slam where he had the most success. And, you know, this is a little bit hot takey, but for him to win Hala and beat Felix 6-6, six and six, doesn't have his serve broken in that match. Beats Kyrgios, 4-6, 7-6, 7-6. Broken in the first set, not broken down the home stretch of that match. 1-4 over Medvedev. Doesn't face a break point throughout the course of that match. And I know Medvedev played particularly poopy, but you look for Hubi Hercots. The other names I said on this list, Kyrgios, Felix, he beat him. He was a semifinalist here last season. He has everything you want from a skill set perspective. And you look for Hubi Hercots holding 90.4% of the time this season. That number ranks fourth overall on the ATP tour. He's got the six foot six length, which you need on these grass courts because of how difficult it is to move in the outer thirds of the court. Just helps when you have a little extra arm length to work with. He's comfortable moving forward. His forehand chops become that much more effective on this surface. He's an exceptional volleyer. The problem is he has more stinkers than Matteo Berrettini, right? You look for Hubi Hurkacz every so often. He'll throw in the loss to a Fucevic in Stuttgart. Or, you know, he'll throw in that off-brand. Uh, he really hasn't had that many of them this year. But the Manorino loss at the Australian Open. He has just had, like, two more bad days than Berrettini this season. And that's why I have him fourth. Like, I think that he—I would agree with you. He probably has to be number four, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate, uh, Hercots or Berrettini, which one do you favor? I mean, the one thing that, that Hercots has that Berrettini doesn't have, and you can obviously debate sort of the significance of this, is a win over a big three guy at a Grand Slam tournament. I mean, he didn't sure. just beat Roger Federer last year at Wimbledon. He really killed him in a way that had people thinking that Federer was about to really wave goodbye and play, having played his last match. Yeah, but does he, that count? Not well, to interrupt I, you. I but, said you could debate the significance of it because yeah. of the state of Federer. I'm going to debate same, it. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, eh, <laughs> again, this is these are these are matches that these guys should all kind of be winning, threatening to win, at least winning once or twice, you know, in the last couple of years. And Hubie's the only one that's managed to, to do it and did it in style at Wimbledon last year. I mean, obviously then did lose to Berrettini in the semis of, of Wimbledon. So, I mean, I, you know, which is, which is better, yeah. you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Um, but at the same 
same time, it, that does speak to a certain, you know, not, you know, kowtowing to the, the aura of the big three guys, certainly Federer at Wimbledon. There was a lot of attention and momentum and hype on whether, you know, Federer can make that last big run and for him to, to really end it as perfunctorily as he did. It certainly, certainly rang, it rang a bit in my head um, looking ahead to this year. I mean, it does feel like a really big moment for him having a really great week where he then goes through both Felix and Kyrgios to your point, you know, if we're really stacking up the top favorites, you have that sort of recent wins over both of those guys certainly puts him in, in good stead and, and really solidifies him amongst the top four favorites. So sort of which one you prefer. I mean, obviously there's been so much, you know, attention on Berrettini's grass court aptitude in particular. You know, I think it's maybe not the same for Hercats, but at the same time, Hercats has such incredible weapons as well. Tremendous serving abilities, that certainly rival the Italians. So it's, that's really tough to, to pick one or the other right now, but I, yeah. I'd go Hercot simply because again, you're splitting margins 41 and 10 versus non top 20 opponents over his last 52 weeks. Berrettini, uh, I think it was what, like 22 and five or something like that. It's, or it's like, or excuse me, 28 and five. It's, it's pretty similar. I just think Berrettini's Berrettini's floor is a little bit higher. He's just a little bit better as a server. His plus one's just a little bit easier to find. And so, you know, again, he's a little bit more limited as a returner, but he's also a little bit more consistent as a returner as well. Neither guy inside the top, you know, both guys outside the top 40 of the ATP uh, in terms of break percentage uh, amongst top 50 players. I just think Berrettini's a slightly sure thing. I think Hercots has to be four. If you have any final thoughts on Hercots, obviously feel free to feel free to throw them in. But I think Nick Kyrgios actually has the highest upside of this tier two players. I would, you know, I see you putting the finger up. You have one point for me. Yeah, I was just going to say it's it's a bummer that Hercats and Berrettini are the seventh and eighth seeds. It just yeah. feels like they really should be well, the third and fourth seeds here. Counterpoint: it, We may get to see the two best shots at Rafa and Novak if they're the two guys who get the shots at them, and certainly prior to them playing one another, because obviously Rafa and Novak, each other's biggest enemy in the draw. But there is some upside there. Those are the matchups we would want to see. And if that's the case, we may get to see them. But, but the question also is, would you, would you, if you were Hubert Hercats, imagine for a moment, a pause for laughter, would you rather face hey, Nadal or Djokovic in the quarterfinals, or would you rather play them in the final? I mean, the final, obviously, but you're going to have to go through them eventually. Um now the thing is, you're going to have to probably play two of them as well because they're the you know again I believe they're the top two seeds if memory serves me correct. Yes, and so no correct. matter what, no matter what, you're going to have to play two of them. Sure, you'd like to put it off till semis, finals, if possible. But maybe you get the big win over one of them in the quarters. You ride that momentum into the semis, and now you're confident enough to take the second shot at the player in the final as well. Uh, of course, you could say, well, if you beat him in the semis, why not just not have the in between match and take him in the finals? The point being. You're right. There's no upside to them being the seven and eight seed. That said, I still think they have to be three and four because I still think they're the two guys. Well, that gets me to Kyrgios. So let's have this discussion. And I have made this point repeatedly on our Crack Rackets podcast, so I will try not to repeat myself too much here. 
But Nick Kyrgios is in the midst of a career season. The numbers say it. The eye test says it. You look for Kyrgios. He's holding 93.6% of the time this season. That's number one amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour. You look for him. He's played, you know, I'm going to throw out uh, the matches he played this week in the eight warm-up matches he played on the grass courts in the lead-up to Wimbledon. He was broken a grand total of three times. Three times in eight matches. If you do that, you're probably going to be in the mix. And let's play our favorite game whenever we have you on this show. David Kane, do you know what's coming? It's time for good loss, bad loss. Let's yes! And yeah, you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. This is a staple segment here whenever we have David on the show, regardless of the mer- uh, which, which podcast platform it is. Australian Open, second round, four sets, Daniil Medvedev. Good loss, bad loss. I want, say to say it. a, I want to say it's a bad loss, but I it, it, it was Medvedev. He was coming off of the U.S. Open, but I kind of think maybe I would say it's a so-so loss because it I, seems like it, one of those moments where it could have been a big moment for Nick Kyrgios, especially in light of the season that he's had and the form that he's been able to display. You kind of wonder, you know, how different his season would have been. Maybe he, he'd be, maybe he'd be down a men's doubles title if he gets the win over Medvedev. He saved the magic to play with uh, with Tanasi. If memory serves me correct, he was up a break in that first set, let it get away, then lost that close for, or you know, got blown out in the first set breaker, ends up losing that match in four sets. I don't. Think it, it was a suspicious loss. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think it was a bad loss though. I think it's a good loss, and I think you agree with me. Rafael Nadal three sets Indian Wells. That's a good loss. I would say I, that's a good loss because a, again, Rafa, the way the the way we were talking about Rafa in March is very different than the way we're talking about Rafa now. I mean, he, there was certainly a, a degree of invincibility around him in March that there certainly is not now. It's it's amazing to think that now we think of him as like being on on crutches, like Tiny Tim. I mean, it's just a crazy way to be talking about the guy who's won the last two slams. That said, a really close one, and and I think he can be proud of the way he played that one. Yannick Sinner, Miami, six and three. That tournament was the same tournament where he blitzed Rublev three and zero. Oh. Really competitive first set. It gets away from him. He did go away a bit mentally in the second, but six and three Sinner. I thought it was a good first set. It was a bad loss, <laughs> especially the way Sinner is really not capitalizing his opportunities in twenty twenty two. It's been broken. It's a bad one. And obviously, listen, I'm a I'm I'm a pretty big Nick Curious apologist. I generally find him to be quite harmless. I think a lot of the things that people have tried to get him on this year. Are kind of weak. I understand the 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 sort of larger implications in terms of you know on court behavior, but I kind of am inclined to say that the things that we're trying to get him on this year are not that bad. I mean, particularly that I did feel the the Indian Wells moment was overblown, and also you know Zverev has set the bar quite high in terms of bad on court behavior. I mean, once you're like almost decapitating an umpire with with your racket, I kind of feel like mm-hmm. bouncing you know an, an unlucky bounce of the racket at the end of a match is sort of not as um, not 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 as contemptuous as I would imagine it to be, but yeah, it, that was a rough one for him because he certainly let that one get away from him. It's it's just that's that's the issue with Nick is is he, is he going to let his sort well, of emotions get the best of him? The case against that is look at what he did over the past two weeks, which is he lost the first set to Nicholas Basilashvili, round of sixteen, Stuttgart. Breaks him right out of the gate in the second set, wins that match in three. Loses the first set 7-5 to Tsitsipas, round of 16, Hala. Breaks him right out of the gate, set number two, wins that match in three. Now, he does lose three-set match to Hubi Hurkacz, but that was a very good competitive match. He did not blink in that match. Yeah, there was some tiffs, of course. There's typical Kyrgios going to Kyrgios, to your point. But he was locked in and, again, wasn't broken in that match. Six and two to Murray. 
Really good first set. He had a bunch of opportunities. Let him get away from him. He fell off in that second set. You're right. I still don't think, though, either of those were bad losses. They weren't great losses, but I think the Hurkacz loss is a good loss. The Murray loss was whatever. And I'm not even talking about Opelka and Houston because— Indiana I'll call it a Opelka. bad loss. <laughs> well, okay, but like 16 and 6. And again, the numbers. He's holding 93.3% of the time. That is a career high for Nick Kyrgios. He's breaking serve— uh, 20, excuse me, I, uh, 18.5% of the time, which is 46th amongst top 50 players, but also 2.3% above his career average. And I do think quietly Nick Kyrgios is plenty comfortable grinding out of that backhand corner. Very steady on that wing. His forehand is always a weapon. Despite its moving parts, it's just effective on this surface. He'll serve in volley. He'll slice. His game is tailor-made for a grass court. Of course, you look for Nick Kyrgios. He has history at Wimbledon and as well in his career. His first big breakthrough moment beating Rafa in that 2014 Wimbledon where he beats him in four sets and you know also beats Gasquet in five sets in the second round of that tournament. Round of 16 Wimbledon the next year as well. You look at his losses over the years at Wimbledon. Rayonich, you know, uh, Rayonich in four sets, Gasquet in four sets, Murray in straights. I'm throwing out the air bear retirement. Nishikori, Nadal, and a Felix retirement last year, but he beat Ugo Umbert, who was coming off of a title the week before, 9-7 in the first round, which what when, what was a very fun first-round match at last year's Wimbledon. 15-7 overall in his career at the event, two round of 16s in a field with no Medvedev, no Rublev, you know, no Zverev, all of these missing pieces. He's kind of a sure thing. And it's like we talk about, well, how fit is he usually going into these majors? I know he withdrew from his RBA match today. I think that was preventative. And for the first time, you can say comfortably, Kyrgios has played three consecutive weeks, two consecutive weeks leading into this Wimbledon. I don't know if he's fit, but if he's ever going to be fit, it's right now. Like, if it's ever going to happen for Nick Kyrgios, if he's ever going to make a Grand Slam final in singles, this 2022 Wimbledon feels like the opportunity. I think what we all have to understand is that Nick Kyrgios is never going to be the player or person that I think we want him to be. And I don't say sure. we, including myself, I just think in general, there's a, a level of expectations that he conform to the model of tennis player that we've come to expect. And certainly there's, there are large shadows being cast by your Federer's Nadal's and Djokovic in, in terms of a level of consistent intensity and determination that Kyrgios just for whatever reason has not been able to match or exhibit. I think with that said, this is really the first season that he's really playing his season, his schedule on his terms. He's sort of balanced what he expects from himself versus what he wants to contribute to the men's game, to the, to the sport. And I think that in that sense, he is in probably an ideal mindset for a surprise run at a slam because he has probably the, the, best possible preparation he could have asked for heading into this tournament, some really tough matches, but some good losses, some good wins. The only question is, will he end up pulling up with an injury at this tournament? And, I, and with that said, I would hope that he only focuses on singles. I know Coco Goff has been looking for a mixed doubles partner, but no, I kind she's of hope playing with he, Jack Sock. Oh, did she, oh, did she come through with Sock? Yeah. Wow. I'm okay. breaking news to you. Let's go. Uh, I missed that. I, I've been off yeah. the last two days, I have yeah. to say. So I, I, I did report that she was looking for one, and I did report yes. that Sock had thrown his, thrown his sock in the ring in terms oh. of looking for a partner. But uh, but with that said, any any other you know woman who's asking for a mixed doubles partner, or even, even if Tanasi wants to play men's doubles, I don't know if you take that chance right now. Like, just try to really stay in that bubble, stay healthy, hang out with Christine. Like, don't, don't risk 
uh, potential injury here because that's really the one thing that he's proven still that he can't quite control is the the ideal physical preparation and and an injury free clean bill of health because that's right now it seems like he's figured out the mental part he's still struggling a little bit sometimes emotionally but that's not as bad as people act like it is certainly compared to the way it used to be and just the physicality is really standing between him and a run to the final it's still kind of hard to picture him stringing together six best of five matches to make a slam final. But at the same time, like you said, given the the gaps in the field, if he's in a good pocket of the draw, if he's feeling, you know, in a good mindset, anything is possible. So I, I, he is a fair contender for this title for sure. And certainly the number one dark horse. If he was seated, he would, no, I don't think he's a dark horse. I just think he's a straight up contender. Like I'm not, I know who I'm doing the dark horse podcast with. I'm not going to say it out loud. We'll leave it as a tease for you listeners, but that guest is going to list Kyrgios as a dark horse. And I'm going to say to them, Kyrgios is not a dark horse. Kyrgios is a straight up contender. And had he made the finals in Hala, he would have been seated. And then it would have been a little easier to at least picture what the pathway for him will look like. But, I mean, again, if he's as fit as he can be, if he makes the second week, who knows what's possible from there. That said, two last names for you here because I do think it's tough to go beyond, you know, six or seven names. Again, Djokovic But you're going won. to try. Yeah, Djokovic won, Nadal two, Berrettini three, Hercots four, you know, Kyrgios, Felix, Alcaraz. I, I say... Let's do the Alcaraz discussion quickly. What's the case for him? Again, Carlos Alcaraz in his career has played, what, one grass court tournament at the ATP level? Like, that's it. He played, you know, last year's Wimbledon, I believe, and that's the only grass court tournament I believe he's played in his career. You look for him last year at Wimbledon, second round loss to Medvedev in straight sets. Yeah, for his career, again, grass court matches for Carlos Alcaraz, one in one, one in one. Is it just, it doesn't matter? Yeah, I think the case for Alcaraz is that he's a future 25-time Grand Slam champion. And so I think <laughs> you do have to just put him in these conversations because he's got to get started. Yeah. You know, he's already he, he's already seemingly a slam behind, given what happened at Roland Garros, what we kind of just were expecting him to run away with. And so, you know, given all of the spiritual connections to Nadal and Djokovic, you know, maybe earlier in their careers, or maybe, I mean, obviously early in Nadal's career, he was doing quite well on grass. So I think you do expect you know, that confidence, that momentum to just translate onto grass. Maybe he'll have a tough year here, but if he can hit the ground running and he can win his first couple of matches and he's into the second week, I do kind of think he is going to raise in many people's estimations because when he's playing well, he's too impressive to ignore. I mean, and we and then again, we go back to that Roland Garros match. He played a bad match against Alexander Zverev. It was not good. And it was really, if anything was going to halt sort of the hyperbolic conversation of Alcaraz. That was certainly one to do it. So he's got an, another chance here again in a, in a watered down somewhat field to um, redeem himself, you know, at Wimbledon. And, and if he can do it, it can kind of erase the bad memories of Paris. And if he can't, then, you know, he'll have to start for 25 at the U.S. Open, I suppose. Yeah, I, I agree with the case. His skill set just translates everywhere and his ability to move forward. He will be comfortable moving on the surface. He'll find his rhythm. Yeah, there'll be some slips, but he should ultimately be okay. He's more than comfortable as a volleyer, you know, more than comfortable as a returner. To your point, it has to start at some point. And yeah, he rested his body. He recuperated. He will be prepared for this grass court tennis. I agree with you. I'm going to boost him up to tier two. I think he... 
again, I, I really do think there there are seven names, like seven names who would not completely blow me out of the uh, blow me out of the water if they end up winning this 2022 Wimbledon title. I think Felix has to be on that list because we talked about it before. It's his last season of being alive in the goat conversation. This is the year Federer got his first Grand Slam title. To Felix's credit, I believe it's 28 uh, and seven for his career on grass courts. I had the number in front of me a second ago. I just lost it. But you look for Felix again, career grass court uh, tennis. He's played at the ATP level. Yes, indeed. 22 and eight, excuse me, overall on grass courts. He's lost seven, six in the third on two different occasions, has lost six and six matches. And, you know, yes, he loses seven, six in the third to Timmy Venereithofen. That was a very good match if you go watch it play. And once Felix found his rhythm, again, it was just first strike tennis, the sort of tennis you expect to see on a grass court. Six and six against Hercots. Didn't face a break point in that match. Yeah, he lost the two breakers, but six and six. You can't hold that loss against him. Four set loss for him last year at Wimbledon uh, to Berrettini, but beat Zverev in five sets the round before. And again, you look for Felix just at the slams of late. He has been exceptional. Quarterfinal, uh, you know, round of 16 Australia last year. Quarterfinals Wimbledon. Semifinals U.S. Open. Quarterfinals Australia. Round of 16 Roland Garros. He goes five sets with Rafa. The longer the match, the more his physicality, the more the relentlessness of his plus one forehand, his serve win out. And I've made this comparison before on this show. There are a lot of similarities between Felix and Berrettini. I think the best version of Felix is Berrettini with a little bit more because there's a little bit more on the back end. He's a little bit more dynamic from the baseline. It's not always just one speed for Felix. Of course, he's at his best when he's at his top speed. The best version of Felix is going to make the quarterfinals of this tournament. And obviously for Felix, world number nine, he's going to be a top eight seed. By being in the quarterfinals, you just have a bite at the apple. And I think we could see Felix quarterfinals, semifinals easily at this event. And then he's got a bite at the apple. And I just, again, I he, at the slams of late, when it's not at Roland Garros, and even then this season, he just wins these matches. And so I, I do think... Felix has made a breakthrough at the slams, and by virtue of his floor being so high, he's got to be on this list. Oh, he's made. I mean, yes, he's a Grand Slam semifinalist. I don't know if I would call what he's done yet a breakthrough. He's certainly very, very well, close. Well, when I say breakthrough, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but round of 16 or better at f- what, five of the last six slams, you're just now always in the mix. And you're right, it's not a breakthrough in terms of a definitive finals run or anything like that, but there's a tier of competitor and that's this conversation. It's like when you've done that, you know, round of 16, five of the last six, including a couple of quarterfinals and a semifinal, you're now in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think we go back to talking about her cats and Berrettini and sort of the yes. unfortunateness of them being ranked um, seventh and eighth in the seating conversation. I think it certainly helps Felix to be seated sixth. I think he'll certainly take that over being seated ninth, which is what he was in Paris where he got Nadal in the fourth round. And then he was seated ninth as well at the Australian Open. Just that extra bump where he's going to have to play one less big name before the quarters is certainly going to play to his strength. He's a, you know, he's a formidable best of five player. He's come up, you know, uh, perilously short, you know, agonizingly short against Medvedev and Nadal. So you feel like he's close. You know, we're looking for players to get these sort of signature wins. If we're comparing 
you know, even Berrettini to Felix. I mean, in some ways, I feel like Felix is closer because he's just had these these top guys on the ropes at these big tournaments where Berrettini has not entirely gotten all the way there yet. So I think they're both, neither of them have done it yet, but I do think Felix is closer. So if he can, you know, get on, get on the roll and, and get into one of these quarterfinals, he is one who I would be interested to see if he can get, you know, Nadal or Djokovic in the quarterfinals. Because when I asked if, if it was more beneficial to get them earlier rather than later. It was sort of that Serena Williams adage. Like it seemed historically it was easier to relatively speaking to get them to get Serena Williams before the final. Once she was in the semis or better, she was nails. I mean, obviously that, that statistic has sort of flipped for Serena in the last couple of years at major tournaments, but certainly in the peak of her career, you wanted to get her in that fourth round quarterfinal where maybe she was still a little bit vulnerable. But I think if you can get Felix and, and Novak, Felix and Rafa, I mean, then talk about like a potential signature match of the tournament. And we're starting to, the clock is starting to run low on Felix where I really want him to get that signature win this year. I would be mightily disappointed if it doesn't happen, but I think he certainly put himself in his best position as possible to do it here in particular. We mentioned it for Berrettini, winless against Rafa and Novak. Kubi Hurkacz in his career, 0-4 against Djokovic, has never played Rafa. You look for Felix in his career. He's 0-2 against Rafa. You look for him against Djokovic, uh, 0-1 in his career. You look for Nick Kyrgios. Uh, excuse me, I'll get to Kyrgios. In, well, Kyrgios and Alcaraz, the guys with wins against these players. Kyrgios has played Rafa more than any opponent in his yeah. career. Second on that list, Richard Gasquet. Uh, th- by the way... This is so nerdy, but seeing who these players play most, now that Medvedev, Zverev, and Tsitsipas are starting to be the most frequent played opponents they've seen in their careers, now the rivalries really are forming. But Kyrgios, to his credit, 3-6 and six against Rafa, and at least we have seen him beat Rafa at Wimbledon before, even if that was a lifetime ago for all of us. You look for him in his career against Djokovic, 2-0. and oh against Novak. So you do just keep that, I suppose, in the back of your head. Alcaraz, 1-2 in his career against Rafa, 1-0 against Novak. So just some numbers to keep in mind as you look at the contenders. Again, I think the list has to be seven names. Djokovic, 1. Nadal, that's Tier 1. Nadal, Berrettini, 2-3. I'd put them both Tier 1.5. Then I go Hercots, Kyrgios, Alcaraz, FAA in that Tier 2 of... Surprised, but not totally, completely shocked if they win the title. Any other names you'd put on that list? Like, Daniil Medvedev, what tier would he be if he was playing this tournament? One and a half? I think one and a half to tier two. I mean, it's just been so hard to really discern any real meaning even from Medvedev's results over the last couple weeks. Cause you, you wonder, I mean, obviously I ostensibly he's playing for ranking points and sort of just playing to almost be present. Like I think maybe there's a part of him that doesn't even want to be playing right now. Like it's hard to even determine why he's, why he's on the t- on court right now, what he's playing for, what, how the pressure might be different if he was heading into Wimbledon. So it's really hard to really gauge him as, as, as it compares to the other players on this list. But I certainly think one A to two is a fair place to put him if he was like seriously in this draw I think it would be easier to make that distinction yeah fair fair to say um with all of that in mind would there be any other names would it would like would a Chilich belong on this list or no what about like a Nori or like you know again I don't think so I don't think anyone else belongs on this list I mean, good for Marin Chilich, by the way. One of my one of my impressive picks heading into the 2022 season, where I, I predicted him to come out of his his prior slump and making the semifinals of I mean, the semifinals, right? Of Roland Garros, yeah, yeah. correct. <laughs> that that happened. Yeah. So you know, it certainly you know set the bar quite high for himself heading into Wimbledon. It would be impressive to see him do it again. Obviously, uh, he is a top 16 seed, so you know, 
depending on how things shake out. Again, if, the draw, if only I had the draw, I could make such better predictions. But I think <laughs> the that that note, and then I was also, I, I also want to give a shout out, even though I don't know what he'll be able to do here on grass, but shout out to Holger Runa for definitively shaking off all those best of five you know, notes that I've yeah. been giving him for the last couple of months. He finally makes it to the quarterfinals and has a really good, uh, impressive result over Stefano Tsitsipas and, and shows that he's physically capable as he is technically capable. Yeah, well said. Well, with all of that in mind, DK, what can we expect from you throughout the fortnight? Exhaustion. <laughs> uh, I will be manning the baseline, which uh, I'll be manning baseline, I should say, which is our- No, know, manning the baseline was better. Yeah, manning the baseline on baseline. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we'll be rolling out our first week series called the Beginner's Guide, which had some pretty impressive hits uh, in the first week of Rolling Garros. So we're trying to do the same thing uh, at Wimbledon and also some some fun and funky series as, as, as we roll them out, trying to trying to really rebrand that corner of the website. And so, oh. so far, so good. Hoping for hoping for more in the, last, in the next couple of weeks. You need a guest appearance. You know I like a good debate, and I like my words. The fingers do still work. I had to – I'm not going to give away because – He's a writer. Was, uh, oh, <laughs> I still yeah, – you know what I did in a past life. Um, with all of that said, of course, be sure to read everything David writes. You can find it on Twitter, DKTNNS. Uh, of course, hopefully we'll have the chance to have him on at least once during Wimbledon as well. But with all of that said, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Wasta, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out to our friends at Turner. Remember, email sales at uniquesports.com to join the Turner family today. Do you use Turner Grip, David? Don't I'm, I'm very I'm very brand loyal to one Yonix. <laughs> oh, that's fair. We'll allow that to stand. I will blank out the name you said. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, a shout out a competitor. Yeah, no, I do have fond memories of those Torner Grip ads in Tennis Magazine with Pete Sampras. So I'm yeah. I'm I'm I'm, I'm a Torner Grip head. In many Let me respects. say this: Would you recognize a Torner Grip on a racket immediately? I would. You can't, and, can't miss that. Can't miss that Torner Grip blue. And that well, they call it purple. We call it blue. Either way, no. I would, Indigo. It, it's the debate. It's the debate you have as a Turner fan, and we all know Turner. So again, sales at uniquesports.com to join the Turner family today for more. Wimbledon coverage, crackrackets.com. Of course, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Cracked Rackets. You can message us directly at AL Gruskin, at Cracked Rackets as well. With all that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Turnin from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, hey, great shot. <laughs> and we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, David. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.